Good evening. Thank you all for joining us this evening at the Catholic Information Center. My name is Rosemary Holt, and on behalf of the Catholic Information Center, it is my pleasure to welcome you all here this evening. Tonight, I am delighted to welcome Ryan Anderson to discuss his recent book, Truth Overruled. And the first book to respond to the Supreme Court's decision on same-sex marriage, Ryan draws on the best philosophy and social science to explain what marriage is, why marriage matters for public policy, and the consequences of a legal definition. Ryan Anderson earned his PhD in political philosophy from the University of Notre Dame and currently serves as a fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He has become a leading voice in the national conversation surrounding religious liberty and marriage. He's a sought after speaker across the country and has appeared on countless national news outlets. You can follow tonight's events at CICDC and hashtag CIC events. Please help me to welcome our speaker this evening. Great. Uh, thank you all for coming. Um, I'm going to just talk a little bit uh, about this book and then uh, save most of the time uh, for your questions and uh, hopefully I'll be able to uh, provide answers. Um, this was something that I had been working on in the months leading up to the court's decision because I think most people could see which way uh, Anthony Kennedy was going to go. Um, I was in the courtroom during oral arguments and he said various things to give a head fake um, as to you know, why he might not actually redefine marriage. But I think most of us were thinking that we had maybe a 20% chance of him uh, not redefining marriage. And so I was starting to research and write this book um, sometime during the winter and then the spring months because I figured if the Supreme Court were to redefine marriage, what should conservatives in the United States do in response? Um, what situation would we be in um, and what should we do as a result? And what I tried to do was take lessons from the pro-life movement after Roe v. Wade. So 42 years ago in January, the Supreme Court uh, strikes down pro-life laws in all 50 states. And the question becomes, what should pro-lifers do? Um, should pro-lifers say, well, we lost, the Supreme Court has decided, the issue is over, time to kind of go home and work on some other issue, take up global warming or human trafficking? Uh, that's not what they did, and that wasn't what I uh, wanted to suggest uh, people who believe the truth about marriage um, should do. And so the three lessons that I kind of go through repeatedly in the book that come from the pro-life movement, um, I want to touch on the night and then kind of give you an overview of what the uh, nine chapters of the book do to kind of advance that thesis. Um, the first lesson from the pro-life movement is that they didn't accept Roe v. Wade as the last word about abortion. The pro-life movement was very firm in saying that Roe v. Wade was judicial activism, uh, that there's nothing in the US Constitution properly understood uh, that requires legalized abortion throughout all nine months of pregnancy. And that the court 42 years ago simply inserted its own policy preferences about abortion for those of the American people. Um, that properly understood there's nothing in the text or the history or the logic or the structure of the Constitution that required um, a right to privacy that was understood as a right to abortion. In a very similar way, there's nothing in the actual U.S. Constitution, nothing in the actual 14th Amendment uh, that requires a redefinition of what marriage is. If you read through the uh, majority opinion written by Anthony Kennedy, it's almost embarrassingly weak on legal reasoning. I can strike the almost. It is embarrassingly weak um, on legal reasoning. And what it is, is it's a, it's a very bad freshman philosophy paper on a philosophy of marriage. 
Kennedy simply asserts his own vision of what marriage is and then says the 14th Amendment to our Constitution um, uh, somehow requires uh, the states to now adopt this vision of marriage. Um, I think this is just important because I mean, we, we, what we want to start with is that this wasn't the sort of decision that should have been made by the courts in the first place. This issue should have been worked out democratically. And so the Chief Justice Roberts has pointed out, even if you agree with the outcome of today's ruling, you know, you can cheer on same-sex marriage. He says, don't cheer the Constitution. Uh, it had nothing to do with it. And so the third chapter of the book, what I do there is I just take readers through uh, what Kennedy says, uh, why Kennedy got it wrong, uh, what the four dissenting opinions say, and why those four dissenting opinions uh, ultimately got the Constitution right, got the case right, um, and had a better vision of marriage to boot. For 40 years now, uh, pro-lifers on January 22nd come to the nation's capital uh, to protest the Roe v. Wade decision and to highlight that it's not the last word about abortion. Um, in a similar way, uh, uh, conservatives should say that this ruling and Justice Kennedy don't get the last word about marriage. The second thing that the pro-life movement did was they protected their freedom. Um, I wasn't alive in the late 70s. Uh, I was alive in the early 80s, but I wasn't cognizant of being alive. Peter Singer had not yet granted me personhood. Um, <laughs> So I actually had to look through some of the history on this, but there were radical uh, pro-choice activists at the time, ideologues on the left, who wanted to say that abortion is a constitutional right, abortion is health care just like any other health care, therefore every doctor and every nurse and every hospital and every insurance plan should have to both pay for abortion and perform abortion. And thankfully those activists lost that battle and the pro-lifers won. Uh, through a variety of legal measures, pro-lifers were able to protect the freedom of doctors and nurses and hospitals and insurance agencies not to be complicit uh, with abortion. And up until the HHS mandate through Obamacare, so up until just a few years ago, this was a broad consensus that people could agree to. Um, that even if you were personally in favor of abortion, you cheered the Roe v. Wade decision, you didn't think the government should force a Catholic hospital to perform abortion. You didn't think an evangelical nurse or pharmacist or doctor should have to perform or assist at an abortion. And it was really only with the HHS mandate that that issue got re-litigated. Uh, in a similar way, there are activists right now who think that every uh, business professional, every charity, every school, um, anyone who uh, interacts with the public should be forced to recognize and help celebrate uh, same-sex relationships as marriages. Um, so we've seen some of the early casualties, um, uh, adoption agencies in Massachusetts, in Illinois, in San Francisco, and right here in Washington, D.C., uh, frequently run by Catholic Charities, also run by um, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, run by the Latter-day Saints. A variety of uh, faith-based Christian adoption agencies have been forced to stop providing services for children because the government said that they were discriminating. Uh, the government said, unless you treat married same-sex couples the same way that you treat uh, married uh, men and women, you're violating marriage equality, you're violating an anti-discrimination statute, and we won't allow you to run your charity. Uh, last year we saw Gordon College, an evangelical school up in Massachusetts, under investigation by their accrediting agency because they had a code of conduct for their campus that's expected all students and faculty to live by the Christian virtue of chastity. The accrediting agency said, well, this is anti-gay because 
you're understanding chastity to mean uh, sex is reserved for marriage and marriage is the union of husband and wife. And so their accreditation uh, was at stake. Uh, we heard during oral arguments the Solicitor General of the United States in response to a question from Justice Alito, what will happen to the nonprofit tax status of uh, Christian schools who continue to believe marriage is the union of a man and a woman? Will they be denied a nonprofit tax status the same way that Bob Jones University was when it was opposed to interracial dating? And his answer was, I don't deny it, Justice Alito. It's going to be an issue. I don't deny it. It's going to be an issue. He said that twice. Um, normally, a litigator will just lie to tell a judge uh, what he thinks the judge wants to hear. Uh, it would have been easy for the Solicitor General to say, oh, this is totally unlike Bob Jones. We would never deny a nonprofit tax status to uh, a Catholic university or an evangelical day school simply because they believe marriage is the union of a man and a woman. And that's not what he said. Uh, probably because someone within the Obama administration uh, told him not to say it because they want to have that card in their deck to play uh, should the opportunity arise. Two days after the Obergefell decision was uh, decided, the New York Times religion columnist uh, published an op-ed in Time Magazine saying now is the time to revoke nonprofit tax status to um, uh, religious institutions. Um, so the timing of this stuff isn't just uh, coincident co coincidental. There have been cases, so I've gone through charities, I've gone through schools. Let me talk about a couple private businesses. The cases of the bakers, the florists, uh, the photographers, uh, here you have people of faith who operate in the commercial sphere. Uh, they've had no problem doing happy birthday cakes for their gay and lesbian customers. They've had no problem doing get well soon flowers for their gay and lesbian customers. They've only had objections to doing wedding cakes or wedding flowers or being the wedding photographer at same-sex weddings. Um, it's not as if uh, evangelical Christians have a monopoly on cake baking uh, or floral arrangements. There are plenty of bakers and florists who support same-sex marriage and who are interested in making money. Uh, so you would think that the market would be able to sort this out. Uh, if you're in favor of same-sex marriage, bake the wedding cake, do the flowers, do the photography. And if you're not in favor of it, then you're going to lose out on business. You know, that customer is going to go to someone else and you might be outcompeted. But instead, what we've seen is that people have brought lawsuits. Uh, and so far, we've lost almost all of these lawsuits. Um, the government has said that if you're not going to uh, provide every service for every customer, understood as um, if you do any wedding cakes, you have to do wedding cakes for all weddings. If you do any wedding flowers, if you do flowers for all weddings, then you're engaged in illegal discrimination. Two um, cases to mention by name, uh, the Kleins in Washington State. They're a young evangelical family with four children. It was a husband-wife um, bakery called Sweet Cakes by Melissa. Uh, they were fined $135,000 for declining to bake a wedding cake for a, a lesbian couple. Um, they were forced ultimately to shut down their business. Um, Melissa is now doing custom cakes from home, which is what gets her around the um, non-discrimination ordinance in the state. And her husband is now a trash collector, and that's how he's supporting their four small children. Another case involves a 70-year-old grandmother, uh, evangelical in Oregon, um, Baronel Stutzman. Uh, she's had gay employees in her flower shop. She was selling flowers to this particular gay couple for 10 years. It was only when marriage was redefined, they said they were going to have a same-sex wedding. They asked her to do the floral arrangements for their wedding. She sat down uh, with Roger, uh, the man's name, explained to him why she couldn't do the flowers. Um, then several days later, she was sued by the attorney general of the state, um, using her more or less to make an example 
uh, that we won't tolerate this sort of bigotry in a, a progressive state like Oregon. Um, what's worth pointing out here is that none of these sorts of situations need take place. Um, the pro-life movement shows us the example that while there are activists and ideologues who think the government should be shutting down uh, Catholic charity adoption agencies and should be questioning the nonprofit tax status of Catholic schools and the accreditation of evangelical colleges and coercing uh, business owners of faith, I think ordinary Americans are just as shocked by these stories um, as conservative Christians are. I think even people who are in favor of same-sex marriage um, question uh, the outcomes of these cases. I spoke last Friday at a panel with one of the Federalists uh, writers. Uh, the Federalist is an online publication, and he supports gay marriage, and he says that the only time that he's questioned his support of gay marriage was when he saw all of these Baker, Florist, photographer, adoption agency, uh, university stories piling up in his inbox. Because he says, that's not what I signed up for. He said, when I was expressing my support for same-sex marriage, I thought it was about coexistence and pluralism and live and let live, and now I see it's actually going to be potentially uh, the use of government force to silence people who disagree and to coerce people into violating their beliefs. So I think our challenge, um, and what I try to do throughout several chapters of the book, is to, one, defend religious liberty as a human right. Um, and so it's providential that this is taking place tonight. Last week, we had several different addresses from Pope Francis emphasizing uh, religious liberty being a human right, um, especially when he spoke um, uh, in Philadelphia at Constitution Hall. Um, then on the flight back uh, to Rome, we got a question about even government employees. Uh, I don't know if Kim Davis's name was mentioned by name, but uh, he mentions there that conscientious objectors have human rights, and it applies even in uh, the workforce, even in government workforce. Uh, so one chapter, I think, is simply titled something along, I think it's chapter four, something along the lines of uh, religious liberty, a human right, or why it's a human right. And just go through the founder's understanding, go through a good philosophical understanding of what religious liberty is and why it matters. Um, the fifth chapter tells the story about a dozen uh, institutions and individuals who've been penalized by the government. Um, and it's ultimately to make an appeal uh, to people who might disagree with us about what marriage is, people who are in favor of same-sex marriage, but they aren't in favor of government coercion and government fines and government penalties. Um, my average classmate as an undergraduate disagreed with me about abortion. They were pro-choice, I'm pro-life. But because they could understand why I was pro-life, they were much more willing to respect my freedom not to be complicit in abortion. And so I think here the question is going to be, can we convince enough people in middle America who might disagree with us about what marriage is uh, to see that the 70-year-old grandmother is not a threat to the community and she need not be punished by the government? And I think the big challenge there is to actually understand why it is that we care about marriage in the first place. And so I point out at some place in the book that if you are a secular liberal and all you know about opposition to gay marriage is what the Westboro Baptist Church has said, you're probably more likely to view Catholic charity adoption agencies and evangelical colleges and 70-year-old grandmothers with suspicion. If all you know is, you know, in the Westboro Baptist Church, um, are the people who picket funerals with signs that say God hates fags. Um, so they're engaged in heresy because God hates no one, um, but they're also corrupting the culture because some people don't know that. Some people, if they've never actually gone to a church, they've never actually read the Bible, they think that's what's motivating anyone who is opposed to the redefinition of marriage. Uh, and if you think that's what's motivating 
Catholic Charity Adoption Agency, that's what's motivating Gordon College, you're much more likely to say, we gotta put an end to that because that is bigotry, that is what causes teen suicide, that is what has all these negative consequences for society, and we simply need to eradicate it. So it's gonna be incumbent upon uh, people like us to speak for ourselves. Um, if your secular liberal colleagues at work uh, hear from you why you think marriage is the union of a man and a woman, why this benefits the common good, uh, why this is true, why this is good, why this is beautiful, and you don't come at it uh, from a hateful perspective, you're not coming at it because you're angry or because you think God hates anyone, um, I think we're, we, have a, we stand a much better chance of culturally protecting our freedoms. Um, as a legal matter, I mean, technically even people who have odious views are supposed to be protected, but as a cultural matter, if you see which groups actually do get protection, it's sympathetic groups. It's a group that in kind of the public imagination, people have broad sympathies towards. Um, and so it'll be incumbent upon us to do that. Uh, there's a sixth chapter that I won't go through now, but just to mention that um, everyone makes the analogy to racism, and so there's a long chapter that explains why the analogy to racism fails, both as a historical matter and as a, a, a conceptual matter. If you want to hear more about that, we can talk about it during Q&A. But then the third lesson from the pro-life movement, so I can wrap this up. The third lesson from the pro-life movement um, is that they bore witness to the truth. Uh, so first they reject Roe v. Wade, they call it judicial activism, they say it's not the last word. Second, they protect their freedoms, they protect their rights not to be complicit in abortion. But third, they use those first two things, because those first two things are only good if you're gonna do the latter, which is to bear witness to the truth, right? Oppose the court, protect your freedoms precisely so you can live out the truth, communicate the truth, testify to the truth, and advocate for it. Uh, and so we now see 40 years later um, that millennials are much more pro-life than their parents' generation. Uh, the witness that our parents and grandparents have borne to the dignity of unborn human life has borne fruit. If you go to the March for Life in January, you'll see that the majority of the people there are young people, uh, people who haven't accepted Roe v. Wade as the truth about either the Constitution or unborn human life. Uh, 40 years ago, the talking heads, the elites in Hollywood, the elites in the universities, the elites in big law firms, said that the Supreme Court had settled the abortion issue and it was over. And it's the work that our parents and grandparents did in making the case for life, the theological case, the philosophical case, the scientific case, if any of you have seen the stupid Bill Nye YouTube video, um, you know, we, people were ready more or less with the drop of the hat to make a good, compelling response. Bill Nye is ignoring this actual scientific evidence about when human beings begin. Um, so Robbie George and Pat Lee have this wonderful essay up at National Review if you haven't uh, seen it, it's worth looking at. Um, but it wasn't just the philosophers, the theologians, the scientists, the constitutional lawyers. It was a system of grassroots outreach. Um, so think about all of the crisis pregnancy centers that have counseled people through abortion. The Daily Signal has a wonderful video up uh, this morning of um, a young woman who went to a pregnancy center dead set on having an abortion. Um, she didn't know she was actually going to a crisis pregnancy center. Um, when she saw the ultrasound, she became convinced that her child was alive. She heard the heartbeat. They helped her bring her child to term, and she's now raising a healthy five-year-old. Um, it was those sorts of kind of grassroots, tangible instantiations of a culture of life that over time um, has won hearts and minds. So I then think of, all right, so what does this look like on the marriage issue? You know, what's our ultrasound? Uh, what is our crisis pregnancy center? Um, uh, 
what is our, I mean, so think about it also, Helen Alvarez recently had started a group, Women, Speaks for them, Women Speak for Themselves in response to the HHS mandate. Before that, there were the Feminists for Life, there were Silent No More, uh, uh, Project Rachel, Rachel's Vineyard, a variety of women saying that Nancy Pelosi and Barbara Boxer don't speak for me. Because uh, the media had tried to portray the abortion issue as if it was just angry white men who were uh, opposed to abortion. And we found new and better spokespeople. So what I do in um, the seventh and the eighth chapter is um, uh, kind of look at that. Some of the new voices, some of the new science, and some of the kind of pastoral strategies. Um, and just briefly, I'll say, first I go through all of the latest social science on parenting. I don't think social science is a direct parallel to ultrasound, because I think if you've seen an ultrasound image, if you've watched any of these undercover Planned Parenthood videos, it captures you in a way that statistics don't. Um, so unfortunately, you're only going to be moved by the social science literature on parenting if you have an open mind to begin with. Whereas I think if you see an ultrasound, um, even if you were not willing, uh, not open to being persuaded of this, it's hard to deny that that entity moving in there is an unborn child. And lots of people carry around ultrasound pictures in their wallets. They post ultrasound pictures to the refrigerator saying, oh, that's my grandson, that's my granddaughter. Social science isn't quite as um, illustrative. Nevertheless, I think Mark Regneris uh, will be vindicated as more and more studies come out. At one point, there was a consensus among social scientists. A decade ago, there was a consensus among social scientists that the best place for a child to be raised was inside of a married biological mother-father home. Uh, that was more or less a consensus up until 2003. And they had had 40 years of large, random, representative sampling, the gold standard for social science, that compared single parenting, uh, divorce parenting, divorce and remarriage, cohabitation, so these four alternatives to the married, intact, biological family. And they found that none of these alternatives produced anywhere near as close uh, of uh, good results for children in terms of outcomes. Um, whether it was the single parent, the divorced parent, the divorce and remarried, or the cohabitating family, uh, they said none of them produce as good of outcomes for ch children. Then the Goodridge decision comes down in Massachusetts. That state court redefines marriage there. And you start seeing many more politicized uh, uh, pieces of social science saying that actually there's no difference between same-sex parenting and married mothers and fathers parenting. That the one ex exception to this general rule was two moms or two dads. Uh, whereas divorced parents, even with remarriage, didn't produce as good outcomes. Adoptive parents, cohabiting parents, the one exception to this rule was with same-sex parents. Uh, lesbian parents in particular, because up until a year or so ago, all of the studies of same-sex parents were of same-sex mothers. Um, so then we had some social scientists actually look into these studies that were touting this outcome. And not a single one had used large, random, representative samples. Uh, they were using small, convenient, snowball samples to reach these conclusions. So whenever you saw a headline for the past five years in the New York Times or the Washington Post saying, um, lesbian mothers, the best type of parents, um, question the methodology. Uh, and so what I do in this uh, seventh chapter is just go through those studies, explain that the 49 studies that the American Psychological Association relies on and the amicus brief that it filed with the US Supreme Court, not a single one used large, random, or representative samples. Um, then there have been eight studies so far conducted using large, random, representative samples, and all eight have come to the conclusion that the best place for a child is with their married 
biological mother and father. Uh, some of these have been done by a professor of sociology uh, right here at uh, CUA, Paul Sullins, and the first one was done at the University of Texas, Austin, by Mark Regnerus. Um, he came under lots of uh, political fire for doing a politically incorrect uh, piece of science. After going through that and just kind of walking through readers, the debates about the social science and what the outcomes thus far have been, um, I then have um, a series of little like uh, profiles of now adult children of same-sex couples, um, children who had two mothers or two fathers and say that while they love their two moms or two dads, they wish they would have had both a mom and a dad. Uh, many of these stories were first published at Public Discourse, um, so it was easy for me to write this chapter because I had edited um, their stories because that's another one of the hats that I wear. Um, but it was only in 2012 or 13 that the first one of these stories came out. It was titled, um, Growing Up With Two Moms, The Untold Child Story. And it was a professor of English at one of the UC uh, school system um, uh, colleges. And he said it was only when he read the Mark Regneris study that he realized that there was a data that told his childhood. Um, that it was only when he read the Mark Regneris study that he actually saw that his experience growing up with two mothers had actually been captured by a sociologist. And that his whole life, people had been telling him not to speak up about this. He'd been trying to publish uh, stories, telling his story. No one was interested in having him doing that because he was the voice like the feminists for life or like women speak for themselves that was countering the media's narrative of, of all LGBT people are in favor of same-sex marriage. He also happens to be a bisexual. Um, he's currently married to a woman, but he's had relationships with both men and women in his past. And so he wrote a piece explaining why, from a child's perspective, two mothers weren't the same thing as a mom and a dad. Uh, several other people have subsequently come forward telling their stories. And one of them had a really um, helpful phrase. She said that same-sex marriage creates an institution for missing parents. Um, that the child who's raised by a single mom is able to say, I miss dad. And I wish dad would have been involved in your life and in my life. Uh, a child of divorce is able to say, I know you both love me, but the divorce has been really hard on me. Um, the child of same-sex married parents is not allowed to say, I miss my absent dad or I miss my absent mom. Um, that what this institution does is it actually creates an institution for that missing parent. And then it tells the child that if they're experiencing it as a loss, the problem's with them. Uh, the problem's not with the institution, the problem's with the child. And unlike uh, single parenting or divorce, no one upholds those practices as ideals. Um, we recognize because we're fallen, because we're frail, because we can't always live up to our ideals, that sometimes they're tragic necessities. But no one sets out to be a single parent or to be a divorced parent. That's no one's kind of goal in life. And yet here, um, what they were saying is by redefining what marriage is, you actually change what the ideal is. Um, that there is no longer a public legal ideal for a child to have both a mom and a dad. That as a result of Anthony Kennedy's ruling, two moms or two dads is the same thing as a married mom and dad. And increasingly, it'll be viewed as a form of hate speech to say what Pope Francis said uh, last November, uh, that a child has a right to both a mother and a father. Um, if you haven't seen the videos from the Humanum Colloquium uh, that was November at the Vatican, they're very much worth uh, watching. And it was at that uh, conference that he both announced he was coming to the United States. Um, Archbishop Chaput was sitting right behind me, so he turned to address Archbishop Chaput saying, and I'll be joining you in November uh, for the World Congress on Families. 
And then he gave the address that the media ignored. All the media reported on was the fact that he was coming to the United States. But then he gives this moving address about marriage and including the line that children have a right to both a mother and a father. So that's um, some of the, I think, new science, new voices. Let me say something about pastoral practices, and then um, I'll conclude, and we'll do Q&A. The problem with uh, the breakdown of marriage did not start 10 years ago with the Goodridge decision that redefined marriage in Massachusetts, uh, nor did it start two years ago with the DOMA decision that struck down the Federal Defense of Marriage Act, nor did it start in June when Anthony Kennedy uh, struck down the remaining state laws defining marriage, the union of a man and a woman. Um, the book opens with two chapters about marriage, and it points out that heterosexuals have made a mess of marriage since at least the 60s. It's heterosexuals who buy into a liberal ideology about marriage and the family that comes out of the sexual revolution that says marriage is simply about consenting adult romance and caregiving, that marriage should last as long as the love lasts, that love makes a family. Uh, and it's all of the philosophy from the 60s, the sexual revolution, uh, this new understanding of human sexuality and of the family that simply has been brought to its logical conclusion in the Obergefell decision. Uh, the problem is that it's the conclusion of a bad train of logic, uh, because this is the worldview in human sexuality that gave us the hookup culture, that gave us the rise in non-marital childbirth, that gave us the more than doubling in divorce rates, that have given us the explosion uh, um, in the abortion rates in this country. Um, it's given us all sorts of broken homes, broken hearts, and human suffering. And so the question is, why would you want to double down on that faulty vision of marriage and sexuality and have it enshrined in your constitution through judicial activism at the highest level? Um, so same-sex marriage didn't cause any of these problems. But by enshrining it into our constitution, into our law, it'll only make things worse. Um, because here is that the, the philosophy of marriage that undergirds this knows no sexual orientation. It's not a gay vision of marriage. It's just a faulty vision of marriage. And the problem is that this vision of marriage, that it's consenting adult romance and caregiving, can apply equally to heterosexual couples as to same-sex couples. And the more that the population in general buys into this vision of marriage, the more it'll be lived out. Um, so what I do in the second chapter is just say that the law teaches. And I point to four consequences of the law teaching a lie about marriage. Uh, how it'll impact adult behavior in general, that it'll make adults think that marriage is more about their interests than about the needs or the rights of their children, uh, that marriage is primarily about consenting adult desire uh, rather than about a family structure that can uh, create new life and then unite new life with both a mother and a father. Um, I point to consequences for subsequent redefinitions. Um, once you get rid of the male-female part of marriage, it's unclear how you justify monogamy, exclusivity, or permanence, uh, a point that several of the dissenting justices point out. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts points it out most sarcastically when he says that uh, Anthony Kennedy randomly inserts the adjective to throughout his opinion, but never justifies why uh, his holding would only apply to twosomes. I then point out a consequence for unborn human life. Um, first, that the worldview uh, that's embodied in same-sex marriage is the worldview that consenting adults should do whatever consenting adults want to do, and that uh, the consequences to other third parties, whether they be children or broader communities is none of their business, it's none of our business, and that provided it's a consensual act between adults, um, they should be free to do that without consequence. 
Um, just as a factual matter, I've never heard someone advocate for same-sex marriage and advocate for chastity. It's not impossible to do it, but simply as a worldview matter, I've never actually seen it done. Um, because there's something about that worldview that does enshrine a laissez-faire vision of sexuality. But then second, um, what we've seen is that one of the um, main drivers for surrogacy um, has been same-sex couples. Um, if same-sex marriage and the third principle in Justice Kennedy's opinion was that there was a, a right to same-sex marriage because the right to marry also included rights to procreation and child rearing. Um, if that applies equally to same-sex couples, the question becomes, well, how do they acquire children? Um, they can't create children naturally. Same-sex male couple, one of them can provide sperm. They can buy someone else's eggs. They can rent someone else's womb. Uh, what we know about this is that it involves uh, the massive creation of uh, human embryos, some of which will be uh, left in freezers, and many of which will then be implanted and then selectively reduced, uh, the euphemism for targeted abortion being selective reduction. Again, this isn't a problem that gays or lesbian ca lesbians cause. This is a problem of heterosexuals. Uh, IVF is a totally unregulated industry in the United States. But the push to redefine marriage and now the creation of same-sex marriage will only exacerbate the problem. Uh, because every same-sex marriage, insofar as it aspires to having children will either be adopting or will be creating children. And many same-sex couples say they want, quote, a child of our own. And so the way to acquire a child of your own is through these assisted reproductive technologies. The last consequence that I mentioned in that chapter is religious liberty, but we've already talked about that. So let me just close by saying four pastoral strategies. Uh, the first is the one I've been talking about, is that the church just needs a response to the sexual revolution in general. Uh, the concern here isn't with same-sex marriage. The concern here is with marriage. And right now, 40% of all Americans, 50% of Hispanics, and over 70% of African-American children are born to single mothers. Gays and lesbians aren't to blame for that. Straight people are. And the vast majority of straight people in the United States don't have a good understanding of what marriage is or what it requires of spouses. Um, many more uh, people in America have their moral imagination formed by Hollywood, by movies, by TV, by music, um, than they do by the church uh, when it comes to what marriage is and why it matters and what it requires of spouses. Uh, and so a response to the sexual revolution in general would be a starting point, and it's a necessity here. Uh, the second is that just like um, the pro-life movement found ways to reach out to women in crisis pregnancy, uh, the marriage movement needs to do something constructive with uh, same-sex attracted individuals. You can't just say what you're against. And so if you're not in favor of uh, uh, people who have same-sex attraction marrying each other, what are you in favor of for them? And I think this is probably the first generation in the life of the church to openly wrestle with that question. Uh, and there have been fits and starts, you know, better and worse attempts to answer it. Um, the Courage Ministry within the Roman Catholic Church has done a particularly good job. The Spiritual Friendship blog has been good at sharing stories. I think at uh, the more theoretical, philosophical, theological level, um, they've made uh, mistakes along the way. But in terms of just telling their narratives, sharing their stories, um, this is going to be vital work. Um, if you're not in favor of same-sex marriage, how do you welcome gays and lesbians into your communities, into your church congregations, into your homes? Um, if marriage isn't the only consenting adult relationship that matters, if there are meaningful communities, meaningful relationships that are non-erotic, non-marital, um, how can we help foster those within our own homes? 
Uh, so Thanksgiving, Christmas rolls around, everyone needs a family to go to. Are we inviting our gay and lesbian friends to our Thanksgiving dinner table? Are we having them be godfather or godmother to our children? How do we, uh, both individually and collectively as church communities, find ways of integrating uh, individuals who will never marry for whatever reason? Uh, third is for uh, the church to find a way of navigating these religious liberty uh, challenges. Um, because again, regardless of the political or legal question, what do you do if you're the baker, or if you're the florist, or if you're the photographer? What do you do if you're the principal at the Catholic school? Uh, what do you do if you're the director of Catholic charities? Um, what's been interesting to me is that based upon um, how uh, uh, Christ-like the person who is being sued has acted, frequently determines how well or how poorly that case goes within the popular understanding. Um, so if you behave like a jerk, you're much less likely to get sympathetic media coverage or to get sympathetic court treatment. Um, if you behave in kind of an appropriate way, it's hard to cast you as uh, the Bull Connor in the story. Um, so if the church can find a way of helping equip people for when you face this situation, here's how to respond in a loving manner, that would be helpful. And then lastly, it'll simply be a, a, a lesson um, in living out the truth. Um, so if more husbands and wives are faithful to each other, if more millennials prepare themselves now to take the vocation of marriage seriously, um, Benedict XVI is famous for saying it's the lives of the saints, not the arguments of the philosophers or the theologians that win converts. And he says that as a world-class philosopher and theologian. Uh, the point here is we can have the best books written defending the truth about marriage, but if it's not actually lived out and experienced, it's not going to persuade anyone. Uh, and so that fourth task for the church is simply to live out marriage. Had marriage not been redefined culturally 40 years ago, Anthony Kennedy would have never been in a situation to redefine it legally. It's only after 40 years of heterosexuals failing to live out the truth about marriage that five unelected judges can say the male-female part of marriage doesn't matter. When the premarital sex part didn't matter, when the cohabitation part didn't matter, when the non-marital childbearing part didn't matter, when the high rates of divorce didn't matter, it's much harder to see why the mother-father part matters. Um, and so if you're ever gonna have a, a success at rever reversing that, it'll be precisely because you've actually lived it out. And I think that'll be what's most attractive. People will say, you know, what is it about that family down the street uh, that's stuck together Sure, they have their struggles and their problems like anyone else, but they also have this joy and this serenity and this happiness. I want what they have. It's the lives of the saints that's most attractive. Uh, so with that, I'll stop, and the floor is open for questions. I just want to thank you so much, Ryan, for coming out here and giving such a compelling and informative talk on marriage. Um, I'm sure many of you have questions, so if you'll please raise your hand, I'll come over and hand you the mic. Ryan, you, you analogize to the pro-life movement in, in a number of instances. I think one difference I see is that in sort of a soundbite culture in the pro-life movement, both sides have found it very easy to sort of yell each other to a stalemate on the basis of rights talk. Mm -hmm. I'm not so sure in the gay marriage issue that it's as intuitive or easy to, for, for, for the traditional marriage side to, to claim rights talk. How do you overcome that deficit? No, I mean, so you're definitely right. Um, 
there are limits to any analogy. And the biggest problem, and this is the problem that we've had in the past decade of simply um, reminding people of an obvious truth about marriage, um, is that so something as simple as marriage being the union of a man and a woman that every one of our grandparents thought was self-evident and common sense um, now requires like dense philosophical treatises on. Um, and how did we get in that situation, right? So it's going to be much harder to get ourselves out of. And because with abortion, you can point to abortion stops a beating heart. You can point to the sonogram. You can point to uh, the Planned Parenthood undercover videos. Um, it's very easy to say, well, the child has a right to life, and your adult rights stop when you cause harm to a third party. And American discourse in general has been about rights and harms. And we all have rights to do what we want to do unless we cause harms to other people. And so pro-lifers um, could very easily adopt that framework for their cause. It will be harder for marriage, because marriage is an institution, and it's an institution that serves a common good. And we're much worse in the United States um, talking about institutions, talking about social functions, talking about common goods. Um, that said, I think we can translate the argument into rights and harms. We can talk about the rights of children to mothers and fathers. We can talk about the harms of uh, the breakdown of the marriage culture in general, um, and then specifically uh, to children raised without both mothers and fathers, even if they are raised with two parents. I mean, so I think eventually, the Mark Regnerus science will be helpful in talking about some of the harms of redefining marriage. I think if you compare children growing up in Georgetown to children growing up in Anacostia right now, you can talk about some of the harms of the breakdown of the marriage culture. Um, kids in Georgetown who are being raised by their married mothers and fathers are given a great advantage in life. Children in Anacostia who are being raised by single mothers don't always have that advantage. It's not that Georgetown has better government services or tax rates. It's that there's difference in family structures. And you did have at some point some uh, on the left willing to acknowledge that. Uh, the question is on the same-sex marriage issue, how long will it take? Um, and you know that's an open question. I mean, one of the reasons why I wrote the book was so that um, uh, people like you who have the intuition, this is going to be harder to defend and explain than the abortion issue, because I can't immediately talk about rights and harms. I have to talk about how an institution protects against harms and protects rights. Um, it's partly to, I mean, this is my best attempt at making it as soundbitey as possible. Uh, other questions? Uh, can you go into the comparison between uh, same-sex marriage and interracial marriage? Yeah. Um, so there are 30 pages on this in the book, and I'll do a more abbreviated uh, version. Uh, the first is a historical point. Um, the US colonies are the first political communities in human history to ban interracial marriage. Um, marriage had always been a common law liberty where race simply was not part of the equation. Um, so if you read Aristotle and Plato, if you read Augustine, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, Locke, Kant, Gandhi, they never talk about marriage in terms of skin color or in terms of race. They all talk about marriage in terms of sexual complementarity. Uh, so they all thought marriage had to be colorblind, but that it couldn't be genderblind. And the reason why is that if you think about the Genesis account of marriage uh, or the philosophical account that Aristotle and Plato had, marriage was about uniting two people as one flesh. Two people can unite as one flesh regardless of their racial or ethnic heritage, provided they're sexually complementary. Right? So it takes a man and a woman to unite as one flesh regardless of their skin color. 
the two who are united in that one flesh act, that same act can create new life, regardless of race. And children have and deserve both a mother and a father, regardless of race. Uh, so this is why historically marriage had been recognized as a uh, raceless institution. The US colonies uh, start prohibiting interracial marriage because they need to justify an unjust system of race-based slavery. And so if you're enslaving human beings on the basis of skin color, you need to prevent interracial children. And the way that you do that is by preventing interracial marriage. If you're trying to prop up an unjust system of white supremacy, the type of interracial marriage in particular that you prevent is whites marrying blacks. Uh, so we sometimes forget that the only form of interracial marriage that was prohibited was Caucasian and African American. All the other races, it was fine if they intermarried. Um, but the one type that was prohibited was that, because again, it was about propping up white supremacy, and it was about um, propping up an unjust system of slavery. So when the court eventually strikes, some states moved to do this uh, legislatively, and then the Loving v. Virginia case ultimately strikes it down. It simply points out that there is no plausible argument whatsoever that anyone could make as to what race has to do with marriage. And so one of the things that I'll do when I'm at liberal law schools, and I was like, I'll say to the audience, I know the vast majority of you disagree with me about same-sex marriage. Can you at least agree that while you might think I'm wrong, that Plato and Aristotle and Augustine and Aquinas and Luther and Calvin and Locke and Kant had reasons for why they thought marriage was the union of a man and a woman. And that I have reasons, even if you think they're bad or I'm ultimately wrong, it's at least reasonable for thinking marriage is the union of male and female. And then I'd say, contrast that to the interracial marriage argument. Can you think of any reasonable argument whatsoever that would explain why uh, marriage would be limited based on skin color? And I've yet to hear an even remotely plausible argument that skin color or race has anything to do with marriage. So that's the historical point. Um, the, the, and it got into the conceptual point, because as I was explaining the history, I went there. But the conceptual point would just be, um, given what marriage is, um, so if you take a sound philosophy or theology of marriage, um, if it's truly a comprehensive conjugal union where the two form one flesh, have a capacity to create new life and to unite new life with a mom and a dad, Nowhere in that understanding of marriage, philosophically or theologically, would there be justification for uh, preventing uh, spouses from marrying who happen to be of different ethnic or racial heritages. So conceptually, it's um, different as well. Uh, hi, thanks for speaking tonight. I have two questions, and you can either answer both or choose one of them. Okay. The first question is, um, a lot of my friends will say things like, oh, well, traditionally marriage is just a contract. Like, you know, it has nothing to do with the family structure. That's all imposed, like, later on in history. Like, really, it's about land ownership and, you know, connection between tribes and whatever. So could you talk about that? That's the first question. Second question is, could you talk about how you think that, like, I, I made a connection between um, sort of, like, the self-definition of, of marriage and the self-definition of self in transgendered um, people. Um, and I'm wondering if you could draw parallels between the transgender movement and the marriage movement and sort of what consequences you think that has. Great questions both. So I'll take a stab at both of them. Um, the first one is there's no denying that throughout history, marriage has been used for a variety of uh, political and social and economic purposes. Um, so you can think about how 
um, dowries were used, how uh, nation states were making kind of like peace arrangements through intermarriage um, when two warring tribes or nations would arrange a marriage to create peace within a kingdom, things like that. Um, the variation that you see in how marriage is utilized politically or socially or economically um, shows that in a variety of different cultural and historical settings, uh, people can use it for a variety of purposes. What's been a near universal, though, is that it's been about uniting male and female um, as husband and wife to then be mother and father. Uh, because the majority of marriages weren't between warring nations at the highest level of you know, prince and princess, right? because there are only so many royal families throughout human history. Um, and so the more mundane, like the more kind of like natural, um, uh, built into human nature purpose of marriage uh, was that sexual relationships between men and women can produce kids. Kids need mothers and fathers. We need an institution to get men and women to commit more than just one night, but to commit to each other to then commit to the child. I mean, so from like a purely kind of like sociological, anthropological analysis, you know, avoid all of the kind of supernatural grace, uh, sacramental aspects of marriage, just hard-nosed what's the natural social purpose of marriage. That's the kind of function that it performs in any given society. Uh, it's a universal need. Uh, societies need the next generation. They need people to raise the next generation. Um, when a child born is born, a mother is always close by. Um, she'll normally be in the same room. The question for that political community is, will the father be close by? And if so, how long? And this was a way of devising an institution to maximize his likelihood to commit to the mother and to the child. The chime tells me to go into the second question. Um, I think the second question is that um, there's a Gnostic strand um, to both of these movements. And it's a Gnostic strand that denies kind of our physical bodily uh, creaturely nature. Um, both of these have a form of dualism, um, a mind-body or person-body dualism in which the true me is the self-conscious desiring self, and everything else in the world is sheer matter for me to manipulate. Uh, and so, I mean, you can trace this back uh, to Bacon. You can trace this back to um, uh, uh, when science shifts from kind of being contemplating the nature of the cosmos to manipulating external nature for our purposes. And now it's gone so far as to manipulating our bodies for our purposes. Um, so I think that's probably, I mean, at, at the deepest level, what they have um, in common. In the very last chapter of the book, I draw um, a larger historical analogy. Um, you know, throughout, I've been talking about the pro-life movement. Here I put it within like a 2,000-year context of the Christian church. And I say, all of the early church heresies really focused on uh, the nature of God. Uh, they were about theology and Christology. Think of all the Trinitarian heresies uh, that people like Augustine were wrestling with, um, all the Christology that Athanasius uh, had to wrestle with. Um, are there two natures? Are there two persons? Is it fully man, fully God? You know, how to understand the hypostatic union? How to understand the Trinitarian theology? And so as a result of all those challenges, we get rich theologies to understand the nature of God. The um, debates kind of... Um, during the Reformation era uh, hinge on the nature of the church and the nature of salvation. So they're about ecclesiology and soteriology, uh, faith and works, uh, sacraments, visible institutional church or private spiritual church. Um, take all the 20th century debates, and here I just uh, take this insight from John Paul II. They all focus on the nature of man. 
Um, whether it's the early 20th century political heresies of Nazi holocausts, totalitarian regimes, you know, some of the things that occupied uh, John Paul II when he was a young priest and a bishop, saying that these systems get the nature of man wrong because they view man as a cog in the wheel of the state. And so man is disposable and expandable. And he said that the crisis of the 20th century was a crisis of anthropology. And that was some of his early philosophy work. And that's why if you read his early, uh, he's melding kind of phenomenology with Thomism and some Kantian strains in some of his earliest philosophical works. So he thinks we have a faulty understanding of the nature of the human person. And then he extends that analysis uh, into the biotechnology challenges. Um, abortion, cloning, embryo destructive research, and now I would say marriage and transgender uh, uh, debates, all focus not on the nature of God primarily, not on the nature of the church or salvation primarily, but on the nature of man made in the image and likeness of God. And you think about what all of those um, 20th century challenges raise is the question of, um, are we created in the image and likeness of God, and therefore with a profound, innate, intrinsic dignity, so the abortion and the embryo destruction debate, and are we created male and female, where male and female are created for each other inside of marriage? Um, that's where I see the, the kind of um, toughest public debates, public theology, public philosophy in the near future uh, for the church playing out. Um, and so in a similar way, if you were Augustine or Athanasius, if you were any of the counter-reformation uh, people, um, and you're thinking, you know, what do we do? It looks like everything's crumbling around us. Um, uh, in the middle of the fight, it doesn't look particularly uh, happy or particularly good. And then from the perspective of history, we can now say, it's so awesome that Augustine did all the heavy lifting that he did, and we can now read De Trinitate and have a much better understanding on this mystery of the Trinity. And it's really important that we had um, the early work of John Paul II with the theology of the body, with love and responsibility, the work of Benedict XVI, um, the pastoral work of Francis. I mean, I think these are going to be our challenges now uh, is defending uh, the humanity aspect. And I think that's, you know, to your second question, what they have um, in relation is that Gnostic strand of kind of denying our bodily creaturely nature. All right, we have time for one more question. Very uh, interesting and well-organized talk. My question is about the baker and the florist. Okay. Let's say they learn, where they're, they're asked to provide services for a man and woman, but they learn that one or both of the couple has a living spouse and did not get an annulment. Right. Would religious freedom permit them, in your opinion, to deny services uh, to a couple that they believed even man and woman were not legitimately going to be married? Sure. I mean, so I, I think, I mean, the answer to that as a political matter is yes, it should. Um, the, the basic argument here is that you don't even have to agree with what the baker or the florist, the photographer are doing. If you would bake the same-sex wedding cake, um, that doesn't mean that you think the government should tell someone else that they have to bake the same-sex wedding cake. Um, so the nature of religious freedom as a legal matter is that people have a right to be wrong. Um, so I don't share Seventh-day Adventist beliefs, but I think they should be free within the um, demands of the common good and justice to live out their beliefs. Um, the way that this has been um, spelled out in American case law is that you can only, a state can only substantially burden the free exercise of religion for a compelling government purpose in the least restrictive way possible. Um, and so this is what played out in the Hobby Lobby case. Um, they said, you're substantially burdening the free exercise of the Green family 
uh, because you're going to find them millions of dollars unless they provide drugs and devices that violate their beliefs. They said, for the sake of argument, we'll say it's a compelling government purpose to make sure every individual can acquire um, 20 FDA-approved uh, contraceptive devices at no cost. And then they said, this isn't the least restrictive way of doing it. Um, you've already showed us by creating an accommodation for nonprofits that there's a less restrictive way of accomplishing this outcome. And so you should have extended the accommodation to the for-profits. Um, now we see the nonprofits are in court. So we have the Little Sisters of the Poor. And the analysis is going to be very similar. They, they, they will either challenge whether it is indeed a compelling state interest, or they'll say, is this really the least restrictive way of achieving your compelling state interest? Couldn't the government simply provide these 20 drugs and devices themselves? Why do you have to co-opt the nuns' healthcare plan to provide these drugs and devices? So in the same way, the argument here would have to be, what's the compelling state interest that's being served in making this baker or this florist um, bake a wedding cake or do floral arrangements for a wedding that they believe violates their beliefs, even if you and I don't share their beliefs. I mean, so even if like you would personally bake the cake or do the flowers, uh, if your theory of complicity with evil is that you can um, uh, engage in this without engaging in formal or uh, kind of weighty form of material cooperation, from the government's perspective, it's not about uh, enforcing orthodoxy. It's about creating the space for people to live out their religious convictions as they understand them. Um, so I would say here that this shouldn't just be about uh, people who agree with me about marriage. Uh, religious liberty is going to be for people who disagree with me about marriage, people who disagree with me about Christianity. It's religious liberty, as the founder of the Beckett Fund said, is for A, for a through Z, Anglicans through Zoroastrians. And that you know, they all should be governed by the same legal structure. Um, so that's how I, I mean, if, if someone came to me in that sort of a case, that's how I would publicly uh, defend them. So with that, I think we're out of time, but I'm going to stick around and I'm happy to answer questions. Yes, so please join me in thanking him again for coming out. Thanks.